0: Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you like today's message. Good morning, everyone. If you're new to our online services, or perhaps you're just now joining us, my name is Ed Nall, and I am the acting senior pastor at Leesburg Community Church. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're looking at chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 17. We are examining three conflicts in which Jesus is engaged as he moves ever closer to the cross. In all of these conflicts, Jesus has no fear, because he is doing the will of his heavenly Father. By contrast, the religious leaders are afraid of the people, because thus far the people love Jesus and his teaching, and they have welcomed him into Jerusalem by proclaiming him to be the long-awaited Messiah. My good brother in the faith, Noel Brown, mentioned in his sermon last week, that the Pharisees are seeking to destroy Jesus because they feared him. He taught us about the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, which symbolized a spiritually barren Jewish nation. The living water was removed. The blessing was withdrawn and given to those who would put their faith in God's dear Son. This morning, we're going to see Jesus engaging in conflict, not for the sake of conflict, but for the sake of The truth, the sake of the gospel reaching all nations, for the sake of the good news of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life reaching all the nations. In the first conflict, Jesus will answer, as he often does, a question with a question. It's a question the Pharisees cannot answer because of their fear. In the second conflict, he will tell a parable that indicts the religious leaders for their rejection of God's Son, their promised Messiah. And in the third conflict, he will answer a question about paying taxes with a single sentence that is the most profound statement that's ever been made about the relationship between the church and the state. The religious leaders and the civil authorities are nervous about Christ because he is seen as a threat to their authority. So they come, and they try to trap him. Let's look at verses 27 through 33 of chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was A prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's been openly proclaimed by the people to be the long awaited Messiah. He cursed the fig tree. He cleansed the temple with a completely righteous anger. And now the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders approach Jesus. These three groups together make up what is called the Sanhedrin. This group had almost complete freedom to rule in religious matters and some power in political matters under Rome's authority. They came to Jesus in the temple and asked their question, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're upset not only with the content of his teaching, But even with his right to teach, they assumed that they had the authority in the temple. And Jesus walks into their holy place where the chief priests have ruled for centuries. And he rearranges the furniture. Then the next day, he comes back and he's teaching. The leaders are thinking he's a nobody from Nazareth, which is a no good place. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He he doesn't have a seminary degree. He's got no credentials. But Jesus comes and he claims to be able to forgive sins and to call tax collectors into fellowship and to have meals with sinners. When Jesus cleared the temple, he laid an axe to the root of their authority and he asserted his own authority. Jesus was saying, in essence, something greater than the temple building is here. A new authority is here and I am that authority. In fact, Jesus is the new temple of God. So Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. It's a question that they dare not answer Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What an audacious thing for Jesus to do. Jesus is on their turf. The temple in Jerusalem. He's being questioned by learned men, but he asserts his authority by saying, I won't answer your question until you answer mine. It's audacious, but here's the bind into which he puts them. If they say John's baptism is from heaven, then why didn't they believe it? But if they say it's from man, then the people will rise up against them. Because the people believed that John truly was a prophet of God. So the religious leaders cannot answer Jesus' question because they're afraid of the people. Their fear is right there in verse 31. We don't have to guess. But there is something more going on here. The baptism of John was not just a baptism. It's not just someone going under the water and coming out. It actually represents the whole earthly ministry of Jesus. John was a great prophet, the last in a manner of speaking of the Old Testament prophets. But he didn't come to speak about himself. No. He came to prepare the way, to proclaim, to herald, to announce that the Messiah, Jesus, is here. So when John baptized Jesus, it wasn't about John. The baptism was the inauguration of a new covenant and a new authority among God's people. If you want to know where Jesus' authority comes from, you have your answer in the baptism by John. His power comes directly from heaven, from God himself. But the Pharisees don't really want to know where Jesus' authority comes from. They merely want to protect their own turf. The Pharisees won't answer Jesus' question about John's baptism. So Jesus will not answer them either. He shuts them down as he moves closer to the cross because he is on a mission. The key question in this first conflict is about who has authority in God's kingdom. To whom does the authority belong? The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day or to Jesus? The answer that we find in all four of the Gospels is this. All authority over all nations and all peoples belongs to Christ who demands all our allegiance. Now, I'm going to move to the conflict on taxes and then we'll come back to the parable of the wicked tenants where I want to finish up. I'm going to read from verses 13 through 17 of Mark chapter 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In verse 15, we are told that Jesus knows their hypocrisy, their insincere flattery. We already know that they're seeking to destroy him, to discredit him, and yet they come to Jesus and say, teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now what they have said is true, but they don't believe a word of it. Their flattery is insincere. Some, some of you probably heard about the death of uh, an actor named Ken Osmond last week. Uh, Ken was a, uh, he played the part of Eddie Haskell on the Leave it to Beaver show in the 60s. Uh, It's still on today. Uh, Eddie was the devious friend of Wally Cleaver and the tormentor of Jerry Mather's character who was referred to as the Beave. No one did insincere flattery like Eddie Haskell. In one of my favorite exchanges, Haskell says, hey Wally, if your dumb brother tags along, I'm gonna, and then June Cleaver walks in, And Eddie says, Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Cleaver. I was just telling Wallace how pleasant it would be for Theodore to accompany us to the movies. Eddie is completely two faced. And it's amusing because we, as the audience, are in on the joke. We see both sides of Eddie. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, their false flattery is not amusing, it's rank hypocrisy. Because rejecting the Son of God is never amusing. The Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. They don't agree on anything except their hatred of Jesus because he threatens their authority. In their culture, the enemy of their enemy is their friend. So they flatter Jesus insincerely and then ask him a question designed to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So Jesus asks them why they're putting him to the test. They have no interest in the question beyond getting Jesus into trouble. And then Jesus says, Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. A denarius was a common coin among the Jews. It had a value of the average of one day's wages for a laborer in Israel. Jesus asked them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now at that time in Jewish history, the Caesar, whose image appeared on the denarius, was Tiberius, who reigned after Augustus from A.D. 17 to A.D. 37, I think it is. His image is pressed onto the surface of the coin along with an inscription which meant, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the reverse side of the coin was an inscription, Pontif Maxim, which means high priest. The emperor was not only the ruler of the Roman Empire but was also the supreme religious leader. He was considered to be a deity. And Now we come to Jesus' brilliant response. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. The coin is imprinted with the name and likeness of its owner, Caesar. Therefore, pay your taxes to Caesar with Caesar's money. But then Jesus ups the ante, and he says, Render to God the things that are God's. Whose image do we have imprinted on us? Listen to these familiar words from Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's okay, in fact, it is commanded in Romans 13 that we pay our taxes. The secular government has a role in governing and keeping the peace. And the church has a primary role of teaching people how they can have peace with God. The allegiance to God is the higher allegiance. Caesar's name is on the coin. But God's image is imprinted on us. We were created to glorify God, to image back to God, like a mirror does, his glory, his goodness, his character. There is then a sad ending to this encounter. It's in the last five words of our text. And they marveled at him. And you might say, well, isn't it good that they marveled at him? Well, knowing their hypocrisy... I don't imagine that they were reverently amazed. They marveled at him because he had outsmarted them once again. But there is no indication that they followed after Jesus. So here's our application from this section. Please don't make the mistakes that are made here by the religious leaders. They marveled at him, but they would not follow him. They would not believe in him in spite of his wisdom and the demonstration of his power. Don't make that mistake. Christ has all authority over all nations and all peoples and is worthy of all our allegiance. Now, let's circle back to the parable of the wicked tenants in verses 1-12 through of chapter 12. Before we read it, I want to point out a couple of things that will help us to hear the parable correctly in its context. First, let's consider the setting in which Jesus spoke. Jesus is standing in the temple among these tall columns. It's called Solomon's porch. And at the top of these 100-foot tall columns are richly carved vines overlaid with the finest gold, leading to grape clusters that are gold overlaid with fine jewels. The vineyard was a well-understood symbol of Israel. So that's the setting. Jesus is standing under the vines that represent the nation of Israel. Secondly, we need to understand that this parable has a biblical context. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 5 in what is called the Song of the Vineyard. So we're going to read that so that we can see that Jesus is speaking here about the religious leaders of Israel when he tells the story about the wicked tenant farmer. The Pharisees and the scribes know this passage well, and Jesus is telling them that not only is this coming to pass, like Isaiah prophesied about 750 years earlier, but it's about them. Isaiah chapter 5, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, Jerusalem. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God has planted a beautiful vineyard and provided for it. And he is hopeful for a crop of grapes, but he only gets wild grapes. Literally stinking Things which are not fit to make wine. So now we see the setting. He's among the vines that represent Israel in the temple. And we see Isaiah's prophecy. Let's read the parable now in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, with a greater understanding. It is a parable of judgment. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully." And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, And threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This parable shows us four things at least. First, the hope that God has for his people, for his vineyard. Secondly, the kindness of God, the persistence of God and love toward his people. Third, the severity of God. And fourth, The ultimate triumph of God as the stone rejected becomes the cornerstone. The parable is not meant to be just some ancient agrarian history. Jesus is asking us right now today to evaluate our lives in light of God's gracious provision for us. In our parable, the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is God's people, Israel. The tenants are Israel's leaders who are charged with teaching and caring for the people of Israel. The Son, of course, is the Son of God. And the servants that have been sent are the prophets and the fruit of the vine that the Master is hoping to collect are lives lived in obedience to God. And you can see from the previous passages that we have read that God has shown love to His people by building the vineyard, protecting it with walls, building a wine press for the harvest, and a watchtower for its safety, God has set up the tenants with everything that they need in order to be successful. This was a common arrangement in those days. Jesus' listeners would have been very familiar with situations like this. The tenants, or the vine dressers, gave a portion of the fruit of the vine to the owner. And then they were allowed to keep the rest. That was the arrangement. So the owner sends a servant to collect what he is owed. But instead of giving the owner his due, they beat up his servant and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner persists by sending more servants to collect what is rightfully his. And then there is this frightening result in verse 5. Some they beat and some they killed. The wicked vine dressers engage in escalating violence as the owner sends more servants to collect some of the produce of the vineyard. But remember, this is a parable meant to demonstrate a spiritual reality. And here it is from the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote about Israel's leaders in Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 23. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent All my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. At the climax of Mark's parable, as a last resort, the owner sends his son, reasoning that they will respect him. But not only will they not respect him, They plot against him and they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard, thinking that now that the heir is dead, they can keep the vineyard for themselves. Thinking in essence, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we can be like God. So Jesus has set the trap with the parable. And he asks them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And they answer, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. They have answered correctly. But the Pharisees and the scribes answer Jesus' question without seemingly knowing that they are indicting themselves. The master will come and destroy the wicked tenants. God is the master and he will come and destroy them. The religious leaders will be taken down and the vineyard, God's people, will be given to others. And sure enough, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. This story, this parable, is really a history of salvation. It goes like this. God loved the world and he chose a people for himself, that's Israel, from whom he would bless all the nations of the earth. He provided for them. He cared for them. He delivered them out of bondage to Egypt. He gave them the law and built them a city and gave them a temple and prepared an altar. God was working on their behalf. Isaiah 64 puts it like this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. God is working for those who wait for Him. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. In religion, we try to do enough good things that God would accept us. In Christianity... We put our faith in the one who has done everything that is necessary for us to have a relationship with God. So God was, at all times, working on Israel's behalf. He sent prophets to them to reap what he had sown, and they killed them. He sent more prophets, and they killed them as well. Some were actually sawn in two. Finally, God so loved Israel that he sent his only son. But instead of worshiping him as they should have, The leaders of God's people plotted against him, arrested him, and then killed the Son of God. He was killed outside the vineyard, or as Hebrews puts it, outside the camp. Then Jesus makes clear what he's saying in the parable. He asks them, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what's happening here? The stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus, is the most important stone. The stone the builders rejected is the one essential stone in this structure. He is the one and only son of the one and only God. But Jesus is not shocked by their rejection. Remember, he's already told his disciples at least three different times in the Gospel of Mark That he will be rejected, he will be tried, he will be killed, but then he will rise on the third day. Look at verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. How do we know that this was the Lord's doing? And why is it marvelous in our eyes? Because the rejection of Jesus and his death and his resurrection from the dead is what enables everyone who will put their trust in him to have forgiveness of sin, And everlasting life. That's why it's marvelous in our eyes. But how do we know that it's the Lord's doing? Because it was prophesied many hundreds, even thousands of years before. Listen to the way Jesus' disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue speaking your word with all boldness. This was God's plan all along. That's why the psalmist could say it is marvelous in our eyes. The religious and political leaders and the people did what God had predestined should take place. And here's the result. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. These three conflicts that we've looked at today had to occur. They were part of God's plan in which he sent his son into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served us by living a sinless life and then sacrificing his life to pay the penalty for our sin and to give us new and everlasting life. So here's the takeaway today. All authority over all nations and all peoples, belongs to Christ, who deserves all our allegiance. Because that is true, we dare not make the same mistake that these religious leaders made. They marveled at Jesus, but they also plotted against him. They tried to trap him, but in the end, they walked away. They would not follow Jesus. They did not do the one thing that they should have done, Repent of their sin, and place their faith in God's beloved Son. Don't make the same mistake that they did. Put your trust in Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be saved. You'll have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for each person who's watching on the internet or on DVD or whatever the case may be. Thank you for each one of them, Lord. You knew that they would watch this, and you had something to say to them. Lord, I pray that uh, those who know you would respond in faith and be encouraged by what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, if there are some listening today who have never placed their trust in you, would you move them by your Holy Spirit to place their faith in you, to believe in you, the one and only Son of the one and only God, and their sins could be forgiven, and they could have everlasting, eternal life in Christ. Amen.